discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. Many of us have been to an emergency room during our lifetime, but rarely have we had an opportunity to see through the eyes of someone like Jay Baruch, a veteran emergency physician who is also an extraordinary storyteller. In today's episode, Dr. Baruch will share his wide-ranging, often surprising experiences in emergency medicine, many of which are described in his new book, A Tornado of Life, a doctor's journey through constraints and creativity in the ER. He'll offer a sample of his short, profoundly affecting stories where it becomes clear that the biggest part of an ER doctor's work is often caring for people who come in, not only with medical problems, but with social and emotional issues, sometimes all of them at once. Patients like Cheryl, who told Dr. Bruce Baruch that he felt she, he felt a tornado, stuck in a tornado of life. Dr. Baruch will explain how he views medicine as a fundamentally creative act, much like his writing, and how the arts and humanities are essential clinical skills for embracing the complexity and uncertainty at the heart of clinical decision-making and patient care. Indeed, he discovered over the years that he's a better doctor when he's writing. Dr. Baruch will also talk about what he's learned as a patient himself in the ER, what we should be teaching medical students that we're not, and how we need to change the way we view doctors' illness and what he calls the emotional and, con- and moral contact sport that is emergency medicine. So now let's meet our guest, Dr. Jay Baruch. Dr. Baruch, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Ron. It's really great for, uh, to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a terrific pleasure for for many reasons that I'll get into, uh, but first I want to. So the book is terrific, and I I will uh, encourage readers uh, to everywhere to to pick it up um, when they can. Uh, and but and we'll get into a lot of the aspects of the book. But before we do, um, I I did find I, I mentioned to you earlier that I I did find it really um, uh, you know inspiring that while I I have had guests who have careers and then write about their careers. Um, and so they, they write about a career, but rarely do people like you uh, have sort of an integral DNA of your, your professional, your, you're a physician and a writer. And it, it, it's come, you know, it's, it's been in the works for a long time. So I wanted to ask you about, I always like to get not only uh, the story of, of, the, of the, the book itself, but the story of my, my guests. So tell me a little bit about how you started out, you know, and how you integrated these two uh, professions. Very much by accident. Uh-huh. <laughs> like all transitions yeah. you know, that you plan for, they're often um, unexpected. And only when you look back over the distance of a life do you say, huh, that makes sense. Right. Uh, but I was a, I always wanted to be a writer. I, I actually went to college to be an English professor and actually studied in English and graduated with a degree um, in English. Uh, from undergrad. And my love of stories and my love of, um, I think, complex characters, you know, that's what, mm-hmm. what literature is, is like, you know, you can come at it from many different angles. But I think we're, for those of us who love to write, and for those of us who love to read, we just love to sort of learn about complicated characters, how we're all not just one thing. And our mm-hmm. greatest characters in literature are such are such constructions and creations that they're alive in our minds as real mm-hmm. people. And and I found that during my undergraduate 
uh, education, I had an opportunity to take a class or two that in, involved like medicine, going to a local hospital and actually talking to patients. That was one element of the class was actually having contact with patients and, and just talking to them. What else could we do? Mm-hmm. And um, I loved it. I, I mean, it felt like such a privilege to be able to talk to people who were sharing such great, sharing not just their own experiences, but their fears. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes sharing things with us that they don't even tell their doctors because we have time. We have nothing mm-hmm. but time to listen. Right. And it really impacted me in a way because I'm not like a science guy. I wasn't like someone who I was going to have the grades. I didn't even, I never thought I was going to go to get into medical school because I was not really terribly a strong, 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 super strong science student. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I went to medicine. I did. And, but my, my first entry point was actually stories. I love stories. Mm. And, uh, and so my, my journey has really been to try to integrate the two and try to hold on to the two, uh, largely because a lot of the challenges that I face as a clinician, which I write about um, intermittent, you know, throughout the book, is is how we are fundamentally, uh, as physicians, especially in the work that I do, we're fundamentally professional story listeners right. uh, with some training to to hopefully act on what we hear in a in a productive and promising way. Right. Um, So let's uh, take it on another story, which is, you know, the sort of the accidental story of the title of the book, which you mentioned, you know, what, you know, a a tornado um, of uh, of events that affected one of your patients. That, again, was you mentioned me was sort of accidental, but the follow up with intention and realizing, aha, what, you know, this is (laughs) this could be the title. But so tell me about this patient and how you, you you picked that up as the title. Yeah, well, the 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 experience happened years ago, and it was important for a couple of reasons, which mm-hmm. I'll share now. Um, so one is just the petition I, I sort of write about was someone who came in with a with so many different layers of trouble. You know, not just medical problems. She had mental health issues. She had substance issues. She had housing issues. There was a death of a loved one, um, and. And she was making a scene. She was you know, screaming a little bit, making a scene. And then she wouldn't talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just sat there with her. And I was at one point, I was just trying to like say, trying to sort of coax her and try to like just sit there. And, until eventually she she said to me, out of nowhere, she goes, you know, I'm stuck in a tornado of life. Mm-hmm. And And what hit me, Ron, at that moment was that, uh, in my other work, and sort of in writing and in the humanities, because that's where my sort of a lot of my academic interest is in, in health humanities. There's a you know, a wonderful scholar writer named named Arthur Frank who wrote this book called The Woman's Storyteller, and mm-hmm. in it he writes about three different narratives that we that operate in medicine generally. Like they, mm-hmm. and and one is a restitution narrative, like a cold commercial, you're sick, then you take the purple pill, then you get better. Then there was the quest narrative, which is, you know, like he's a cancer survivor. So you get sick, you go up into the land of the ill and you're, you face trials and tribula- tribulations. And you, and if you're lucky, you come back, but you're not the same person. You were changed because of your experience. And then he has chaos narratives, which are mm-hmm. stories and experiences that are so complicated. They almost defy language, you know, and the, these people who tell chaos narratives are just 
It's like, and this happened, and this happened, and then, and then, and then. And the worst thing you could do as a physician is try to turn it into a restitution narrative, turn it into a story where there's a definite answer when there is none. And the most important thing you can do is actually listen to them and honor the storyteller and honor the, the and, and give legitimacy and dignity to the patient's experiences and the person telling the story. And it was at that moment, it was one of those seminal moments where I saw a connection between what's supposed to be unrelated, but two fields that really are critically intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, we do underestimate, um, you know, the the essence of story behind people. Um, and we, we go into, uh, especially medical situations, uh, with data and looking for solutions to particular problems and not really connecting a lot of issues. Um, so I think that, you know, the chaos narratives, I think, are very interesting. And I, th I often think about, well, that's a lot of what the emergency room is as you walk into one. Yeah, obviously, not everyone has a chaos narrative, but it's a it's an atmosphere that that you really have to be um, prepared for lots of situations that are not just classically clinical. Um, and I think that the subtitle of your book actually deals with some of those issues. You know, we talk about the constraints and creativity um, of emergency medicine, and I think people get like what are a lot of the constraints. But it's the creativity part of it which which fascinated me. Like you're being being able to think about it in, in creative terms to come up with an approach to to deal with problems. So to talk about you know a little bit, expand on on the notion of how creativity fits into medicine in general. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the patients aren't like questions stems right with an answer with you choose A, B, C, or D, and that's the answer. People come in with complicated experiences. Um, oftentimes having difficulty putting language to those experiences, sometimes having incredible distress that for which there's no medical cause that can be identified, but they're in distress. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are people who come in for so many different types of problems. So the, uh, the humanity scholar, Catherine Montgomery, wrote in a book about how, you know, patients are uncharted territory. Mm. Right. Medicine likes to be evidence based. Right. Which is we take data from hundreds, if not tens of thousands of patients and try to make some decisions you know, and, and have good, solid evidence around it, which is important. It's critically important to be able to have that information. But it's only one type of information. And we can't. And, and what might be what might work for 10,000 patients might not work for the one patient is in front of you. And plus, the focus on data can be so overwhelming that we sometimes don't step back to say, listen, are we asking the right questions? Do we know the real reason why the patient is here right now? Um, and oftentimes they're not forthcoming about that, but their presence in the emergency department. Sometimes they couch their terms in, in sort of more ambiguous language. Maybe they're embarrassed, maybe they're ashamed, maybe they're terrified and frightened. Maybe they're in so much pain. Maybe there's so many different factors going on that we're focusing on the medical part, but it might be a mental health problem or a housing or a socioeconomic issue that's going on. That's, that's the real thrust of their problem. So you have to be open to that. You have to be open to what not just to what is said, but what is not said, and to try to be and try to make connections of unexpected data. And ultimately, what we do can feel like an improvisation. 
Mm -hmm. because each patient is so different and we have to be careful when not making something that is not simple, make it overly simplistic, oversimplify something that is not necessarily simple. Right. And straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you've mentioned uh, to me before about just the, the dealing with the uncertainty and the ambiguity, which is, you know, anathema, you know, in, in much of our culture, um, you know, my career in journalism, uh, you know, when you ask people questions, they are really loath to say, especially public officials, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, I've worked with people and, and sort of trained them to say, when you don't know, say, listen, I don't know. I will get back to you on that, however, after this interview, you know, because I know that's important to you and I want to find the answer to that. But, but rather than make something up and try to, you know, um, reverse the uncertainty when we really don't know a lot about a lot of things. Um, one of my experiences, um, which uh, I'll just relate to you quickly, was a few years ago, um, just as in the beginning of the pandemic, um, I uh, woke up one morning and I was in agony. My body was in pain, stressed out. Um, I couldn't sleep. I could hardly move. Um, and, and I was like, what the hell happened? And it became gradually a little bit clear, like, okay, this seemed to be some sort of, you know, intensive inflammation, the result of my sitting all the time, working on a project to finish a book for somebody. Um, and so it was kind of a reverse, you know, repetitive motion injury, but it was just that I was in, in that position, hadn't moved sufficiently. Um, and I, you know, went to an orthopedist and he sort of looked at me and said, well, hmm, okay, you know, and did a few tests and did a, you know, a scan and, and then said, well, I don't know, maybe talk to a physical therapist or a rheumatologist. I don't know. And, uh, but uh, so I did, um, but the, they were looking for some specific things to fix um, and they weren't looking at the greater problem. And finally, I went to a physical therapist who then that woman asked, he started asking many questions about what was I doing? Where did I live? Where did it hurt? What happened? And, um, and eventually I, I got quote unquote cured um, without ever knowing really what it was. There was some you know, suspicion it was rheumatoid arthritis, blah, blah, blah. The markers really weren't there. The point was that I, I ended up um, getting through it, ending with ambiguity, but also appreciating when people took the time to ask, what was my story? <laughs> what happened? You know, what, and I think so that element of what you describe is really, you know, resonates with me. That's for sure. I love that story for, and because it points out so many important things, Ron. Uh, so one is that, so your doctors were trying to find out like what, what could be causing this situation? Like what, what could be the source of it? Which is important, like, because you yeah. want to make certain, like, what are, is there something that is diagnosable um, that we might be missing it and that we possibly could be treating? And so that's one. So like they have, you have to go through this period of trying to like figure out like, what is, is there something we should be, we should be finding? Cause as clinicians, if there's a problem, we should be able to, we should be, our goal is to try to diagnose that and hopefully treat it. Um, but then there's also your experience of what you were going through. 
right? And so even if there is uncertainty about what might be causing your symptoms, your pain, your aches, your suffering, um, there's also just your experience of what of what you're going through. And, and that can't be forgotten. Sometimes we become so focused on what does the patient have? We, we lose sight of what exactly is the patient going through. Right. And I oftentimes find that patients are quite comfortable with uncertainty. If you, even if you don't know what they, you can't give them a diagnosis, but if, if you can show that you care, if you can show that and say, listen, I can't tell you what you have, but I can be somewhat certain we can do it. This is what we can do. We can try to make, we can try to see what it's not. If it's not, we know this information. Um, and how can we sort of help you, uh, you know, tomorrow? I always try to think about a future. How can we help you tomorrow? So it's not like you're just gone, but we have a thinking about the impact of what's going to happen down the road and the journey of your experience. And and I love your story about the, the physical therapist because we oftentimes the challenge is, is just asking, like changing our angle of questioning mm-hmm. to, to think about things, about non-medical issues or other contributory factors that may be contributing to your symptoms or maybe contributing to your experience. Um, and And that's so important. And you probably felt great having someone who is expressing such curiosity, interest, and other aspects of your life and how your your symptoms were impacting your life, which is so critically important because it shows that, 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 that you're at the center of things, not this other thing, which is undiagnosable, but you, like you, Ron, are at the center of this. Right, right. Um, uh, we're going to come up with a break shortly, Jay, but, but I just uh, on that point, yeah, I think it is, um, it's tough because I think that, you know, and we'll talk about this on the other side of the break, but that the now as we get into the constraints side of your business as to what you know what's what are the obstacles to you really taking the time to figure out people's stories because there are a lot of them in medicine and I, and I acknowledge them uh, you know we, we can call it whatever you want corporate medicine or you know or pressures of insurance companies and so forth. So there are constraints. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but right now, folks, we need to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking much more with Dr. Jay Baruch, an emergency physician, educator, and writer. So don't go anywhere, folks. We have a lot more to talk about. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety channel the internet's number one talk station number one talk station 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Dr. Jay Baruch, emergency physician, educator, and writer, uh, most recently author of A Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. And before we continue, I wanted to mention that you can find out much more about Dr. Baruch um, at his website, um, which is uh, jbaruch.com, right, Jay? Yep. That, yep. Jay Baruch. You can see his blog. You can see more information about him. Um, and uh, it's it's worth a check out. Uh, so, uh uh, I'll mention that again at the end of the show, but I wanted to mention that uh, before we got too far. Um, so before the break, Jay, we were talking about the constraints of working with, uh, uh, you know, patients. Um, uh, as I as we were talking earlier, sometimes it's hard to deal with um, uh, just the constraints of corporate medicine. Uh, you know, I I, um, I mentioned to you in one of our earlier conversations about a brother of mine who was an ophthalmologist and and. You know, felt he finally set up his own practice because he felt constrained uh, by a system which basically said to him, "You're spending too much time with patients." Um, so it is hard to spend time uh, getting the stories of patients, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that, about especially in an emergency room. I think in one of in one part of your book and one of your interviews, you were talking to someone who said, "You're you're an emergency physician. You don't have time for stories, but you've made time." So talk to me about how you basically deal with the constraints of, of your, your uh, profession. That is a work in progress. There right. are so many. <laughs> I will be a liar, Ron, if I tell you that I figured this out. Uh, there are so many different types of constraints and, you know, and I'll break it down for, for your listeners. You know, there are like the corporate and constraints um, being placed on physicians to see more and more patients um, right. in less less time. Uh, in the ER, there's, you know, there's, there's situational and space-specific constraints, which is where oftentimes I'm seeing many, many patients simultaneously you right. know, at the same time. Uh, with We have a crowding problem you know, that are impacting so many different hospitals. So oftentimes we're seeing patients in you know, in hallways and chairs, not even in a in a room, and uh, and so we sometimes are take care of patients in in unexpected and impromptu moments that might lack privacy or confidentiality, which is I think people expect when they come into a healthcare setting. There's the constraints of making, oftentimes making life and death or at least high stakes decisions with incomplete amount of information. Like we don't mm -hmm. oftentimes have all the data back when we have to make decisions um, one way or another. And that's part of the training of being an ER doc. Then there's sort of like the emotional constraints uh, of like having our compassion or empathy tested. Uh, you know, right now we're also dealing with a lot of increase of violence in hospitals, especially in emergency departments, which make things very, very challenging. And and then there's the moral constraints, you know, like hmm. so you talk about your brother, you know, there's the the challenge of of trying to be part of a system and what's and what's supposed to be a moral profession where we put patients first. Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of the expectations and the guidelines and the parameters in which we're judged uh, really is putting uh 
profits and putting uh, shareholders above those, uh, the health of shareholders over the health of our patients in the communities we serve. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it is a complicated problem. And there are certain cultural issues, uh, societal issues, which don't make it easier for you, which is, I think, uh, in our society, you know, there is this aversion to pain. And we just want to stop it. You know, um, that uh, uh, I'm sure you're aware of that book, uh, Empire of Pain, about the, um, you know, the yeah, opioid crisis. Book. Yeah, I and, love that book. It's a great, great book. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's and, and that's sometimes on the doctors and sometimes on the patients. You know, it's just, well, stop this pain. I, I just want to stop it, you know, make it go away without saying, well, and I and I, I kind of wince when I you know watch some of these commercials and saying, well, you know, I need to get through my day. Oh, I just can use this or whatever treatment it is, whether it's a pill or some forth. Now I can work a full day without like, well, what's going on? Like, what is causing this pain? You know, and it, it as you point out, it could be medical, it could be psychological, it could be a lot of things. But you know, we have uh, you know a tendency just to try to cover it up and get rid of it without dealing with the complexity and the ambiguity, as you put it, of the cause. Yeah, the, the challenge of pain is, is of course, it's subjectivity, mm -hmm. right? So you just don't know what's, what the person's experience is. It's not like you could do a CASCAN or do a blood test to check somebody's pain and, and, and talking about the constraints and sometimes some of the absurd aspects of medical care you know years ago when they came up with a pain scale they made it an obligation to have a pain scale mm. uh, as if it's a vital sign a fifth vital sign as if it's something that could be measured it was a total absurd uh, absurd you know uh ruling that was put into place mm -hmm. and uh and it because it's such a, a subjective experience and i don't mean that to discount pain scales or discount a person's pain but putting a number to a subjective experience sometimes then sort of can be used as a shortcut uh that that gets in the way of a provider's inquiry and explorations of the very factors that you're talking about Hmm. Um, like what's causing the patient's pain? What's what can you talk about the situation? What you, what's your experience with pain? Is it pain or is it suffering? Uh, is there other aspects that's just, that that they're calling pain? The patient's calling pain, but it's really different. Mm -hmm. And then there are all the cultural and racial and other aspects that that go into a, the provider's interpretation of pain, which is really sad. Which is a source of health inequity in this um, in this country, right? You know, one of the things that I, I, I found interesting in the book, too, is that you try to bring um, readers into the experience, you know, of the stories, experience with the stories. And, and I thought that was really critical. And also, you you know, well, you have three sections, uh, you know, uh, one of them is about vulnerability. And I, I felt that, that was really, um, you know, for something that was important for you to, you know, uh, acknowledge your own vulnerability and and there's you actually talk about time you were in the ER yourself um so what what did you learn from that experience as a that's a doctor you know a, a doctor slash patient uh, a couple things you know, okay. one is that uh that it was really hard for me at first to be just a patient mm -hmm. i ended up being like a doctor patient Hmm. And not in a good way. Like people like, oh, this is so this is gonna be like this is going to make you a better doctor, a more empathic doctor. 
rather than just sort of letting me have the experience of being a patient. Like I was instantly thrust into some morality tale. Um, huh. And uh, and it was interesting too, that, you know, a lot of people caring for me would, would say, would, would look at all these risk factors, hoping that I would have, you know, certain things that predisposed me to, to the situations that I had, which I needed a, heart, a new heart valve. I was in a, 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 a very fast heart rhythm called atrial fib. And I didn't, other than my only bad risk factor was the fact that I was an ER doc working, you know, crazy hours around the clock for decades right. uh, and not eating and, and not sleeping correctly for many years. Mm. Uh, and so that was one. Secondly, I, I, it's amazing, Ron, how you have these experiences, like these familiar experiences that something happens and the familiar looks foreign. Hmm. Like you look at things in a different perspective. And despite all my visits to like hospitals and ERs because of my health problems for a period of time in my life, during one particular visit that I'm writing about, it was a, I looked in the ER and I was like, wow, what a crazy, busy, hectic, noise-inflected, <laughs> raucous place. And how does anyone get healthy here? Like, it looks – how do you establish any type of intimacy mm. in a place that's so big, that can seem so impersonal, that there's all these machines and beeps and monitors and people talking to each other and talking over you um, with a strange language, which I knew the lingo. Uh, mm-hmm. However, mm-hmm. it still felt foreign. Mm-hmm. And it was so bizarre. And my last thing, the people who I was so grateful for, who I was most grateful for, were the people who we who don't get enough credit and don't get enough applause um, and hugs from us, from patients and communities, which are the nurses, which are the techs, mm. which are like the radiology techs, like all the people who are part of the healthcare team and don't get a fraction of the, of the credit that they deserve. They were just these incredible hearts of empathy right. um, and people who I, who I really sort of can't thank enough over the years uh, for everything that they've done for me and yeah. how they made me feel cared for. Yeah. I think some of that came out during the, the pandemic, right? I mean, when you were all hands on deck and, you know, sure the doctors were there, but you had to have, lots of people who were involved, especially the nurses and all the technicians that you mentioned. Um, and uh, I think at one point, uh, somebody asked you about um, w- what was different about, uh, you know, working in emergency room versus emergency room during COVID. And I think you said the same, except more intense. <laughs> right. I mean, there was it was, that- it was, yeah, it was a challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, and other people that you didn't mention, like, you know, like the housekeepers, the people who mm. are working in the cafeteria, all like the frontline, like who's considered a frontline worker is really broad. You know, people are working in grocery stores and the deli counters or whatever. Um, but for us, you know, in the emergency department, like we 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 showed up like we had to we had to we had to show up this is what we right. not only did we have to do this but this is the reason why so much of it so many of us went into this to begin with mm-hmm. and we're used to uncertainty like getting back to your, your previous a previous conversation like we're used to uncertainty and we have 
the team was extraordinary. We had we were practiced in uncertainty. We, were, we knew each other. Like they knew me at my best. They knew me at my worst. Um, but they knew me. I knew like I I there's something about the ER staff that is worth there's no value you can put on them. It's like it's it's greater than goals, like <laughs> platinum. I don't know. Right. However, that that moment brought everyone together. We had each other's backs. I wrote about how I felt the paradox of feeling safest at that earliest stage when we knew when we were most at risk. Hmm. I felt safest actually in the emergency department where I was most at risk of catching COVID because I was with these people who I entrust inherently. Wow. That's, that's great. That's important lesson. Yeah. Um, now I, I wanted to shift a little bit uh, because this is an important part of the um uh, interview for me is, is just talking about the writing and doctoring um, and, and how integral they are. And I mentioned in the introduction that you uh, uh, have said that um, writing was not just something nice to write about your profession. It actually made you a better doctor. So talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm a writer, you know, and with those, and it took me many, many years to, to, say that I took it in a couple of books underneath my belt to even begin to think of myself as a writer. But I give my, I consider myself a writer within a with a small W. Oh. In okay. that I write I, I pretty much write every day. Hmm. You know, and I usually write for myself. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just it's the way I process experiences, the way I look at the world, the way I get my thoughts out on the page. Um, I'm always trying to be creative in some shape or form, whatever that is. And when I'm not writing, I feel like I'm a lesser person Mm -hmm. because by writing, Ron, you know, you get, you get a chance, you get a chance to see how you're thinking, right? You get to externalize what's, what's in your head and putting it on the page and then putting language to that is hard. Like some things you go, Oh yeah, I'm going to sit down and write about this, but it doesn't. Like, because it's hard to take this vague idea, these emotions, and put it on the page and find specific, concrete ways to articulate that. And then once you do that, as you know, from your own work, next thing you know, your mind goes into all these other directions, right? You end up exploring ideas. You end up seeing how you're thinking. It opens you up. And then by also opening you up, it also allows me in my work to then go to work and get filled up, at least emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, like I made the space, if I had challenges, if I had problems, if I I got it out, I got it out in some shape or form. Now I've tried to play with those experiences through fiction. I've, this book is nonfiction, um, but I really feel that, you know, getting, so having some way of processing your experiences and um, and seeing how you're thinking uh, and seeing evidence of that and when you're sort of quote unquote bullshitting yourself right. about that because you mm-hmm. you see that on the page. You say, right. no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, and you know, I gotta go deeper. Like I gotta go deeper. And, no, I'm I'm letting myself off the hook. I can't do that. I gotta go deeper. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty of writing. I, I totally agree. And I think that uh, a couple of things strike me. Uh, you know, when people say to me, um, I have an idea for this, uh and they start talking about it, uh, my first reaction is, write it down. <laughs> yeah. if, if When you write it down, you will know what your idea is or is not. Uh, and, 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 and giving structure to that idea also gives clarity to what it is exactly you're thinking. 
Um, so it, it does, it, it clarifies it. it. It, it makes it, well, it does make it more credible in your own mind and understanding what that is. Um, and then the second thing that you mentioned that I think is true is, um, and another writer mentioned this to me too. She was a clinical psychologist and then she, um, became a writer. Uh, and, uh, she said, you know, when you become a writer, it, it allows you to experience life twice. So as you just kind of mentioned, um, so you go through it and then when you write about it, you kind of say, aha, uh -huh, that's, you give definition to that experience and, and in some ways, um, give context and, and see it in a in light that you didn't really even see when you were experiencing it, but it, 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 it defines it in an interesting way. You also see yourself differently. Huh. Like how many times, I don't know if it happened to you, but for myself, there are so many times, Ron, that I write and I, and I go, huh, I don't come off very well here, or I come <laughs> off kind of glib, or, you know, I'm kind of like sounding like a stinker or something worse. I don't know what I can say on your podcast. Um, but I don't look at, I'm not, I, I, I see myself in a light that is a little bit more honest uh, and maybe brutally honest. And you see it because it's on the page and you got it and you get, and you, and you get, and you, and you have a chance to see others through others' eyes a little bit um, into your own behavior. And then last thing I know we're going to go to break um, soon is that when you're right, you actually look at the world differently. Like you mm -hmm. pay attention to the world differently. I find I'm, I'm more acutely interested and, and curious about what's going on around me when I'm, when I'm writing, at, when the writing practice is part of my life on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think that, um, but one of the things that I, I do uh, acknowledge by your writing too, is that you do, there, there is that, uh, humility that stays behind that vulnerability, which sometimes you can basically try to finesse when you're a writer. It's like not you know, being honest about your writing, authentic about what has happened and how you feel is important. So uh, I, I, I really appreciate that in the writing and, you know, really that humility to be vulnerable to things that you didn't know you know, as, as a, and, and still don't know as a physician. So, um, so we, yes, you're right. We, we need to take another break, um, but uh, don't go away folks. We'll be back in two minutes with uh, our final segment with Dr. Jay Baruch. Don't go anywhere. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at voice America TRN or twitter.com forward slash voice America TRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice of America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Rowell or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.rowell at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with emergency physician and writer Jay Baruch. Uh, now, I wanted, we have one more segment to go. We have a lot to talk about still. Um, I wanted to ask Jay, he was, was the author of um, A Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, um, about, you know, specifically emergency medicine, but medicine in general in terms of, you know, he went through medical school quite a while ago. And, and what, what has he learned over the course of time that he feels now should be taught that perhaps is not being taught to the medical students graduating today? Yeah, there's just such a great, big, that's a great and a big question, mm-hmm. Ron. Uh, if I can tie back into something earlier that you said about story, you know, how we, the, the, the impact and the importance of story in our lives. I feel that all the time what we talk about in medical education and the training of physicians and what's missing mm-hmm. is something that is just integral to humans talking to humans <laughs> you know i feel like if i had a medical student at a you know at a bar talking to a friend with the same type of conversation they would they would be curious they would ask different types of questions they would be mm-hmm. empathic they would be all the wonderful things that our medical students are. But for some reason, I think in medicine, because we prioritize a certain way of thinking, a certain quote unquote evidence-based method of thinking, uh, we emphasize the need to to have an answer that oftentimes the people are not thinking in and being as curious as they should be as, as they, as they are actually as human beings. So I, I feel like oftentimes what I do, is I just give people give students permission to be the person that they are, like to be the individual person that they are, and that it usually means like being humble and being and and, and having humility. I also feel like with the uh, with the pandemic, which has taught us anything, is the importance of being open and adaptable mm-hmm. to the situation because medicine so predicates itself on this is what the literature shows, but so many of the challenges that we face in clinical medicine, there is no map. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there is no map. Like you have to have the skills to be able to try to get to the heart of a patient's story and try to understand what they need and what they're looking for. And how can you you address that? How can you learn not just to solve problems, but how can you learn to ask the right questions? Which it actually requires students, medical students, people in a science quote unquote based profession, to actually think also like artists. Mm-hmm. Which is an, it was it was an open mind, um, 
be to be creative, to be adaptable, to be flexible, actually to take some risks in the questions and how you approach things. Um, and uh, and to be comfortable with uncertainty. Those are all arts-based skills. Right. So I think you need medical students and trainees in medicine and healthcare and the healthcare professions to also be trained in skills that are critical to artists. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's, um, again, you're ahead of the curve in terms of thinking this way, this interdisciplinary approach. I think it's it's coming about, but it's I think it's it's mainly still restricted in certain so in other words interdisciplinary um uh, competence in various scientific fields biology physics you know gerontology and so forth but but bridging with humanities i think is important and i think it's um it, it's difficult and i think um there's a little bit of an analogy for me to um dealing with you know cops on the street you know um, basically you know kind of frontline workers like you guys are um, dealing with situations yes. which are, it's not just about crime. You're not sure what you're dealing with. It could involve um, you know, a number of things. And certainly there, there are boundaries that, uh, that, that, you know, affect you and affect, you know, um, uh, cops in terms of, okay, that maybe that's better dealt with in terms of, uh, you know, mental health professional in terms of dealing. And yet there, there does seem to be a need for some sort of broader level of skills as you put it that we are dealing with humans and yes, we can refer people to specialists when needed, but we should be able to, you know, have, uh, you know, as a frontline worker to, to be able to deal with this. And I think that that's still a challenge for the profession in general, but I, I really appreciate that you're tackling that. <laughs> yeah. We have to be open to the stories of others. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I feel like sometimes we we come to a situation with a story in our head of what this person is about, quote unquote. And and one of the important lessons I've learned in my career in emergency medicine over close to thirty years is that your initial impression of people is can is frequently wrong. And people are complex, you know, and even if you come in with certain judgments, if you just open, just open the door a little bit to their story and, and show it a curiosity and a willingness to listen and they trust you because so much depends upon trust, mm -hmm. right? If they trust you to share a little bit of their experiences, you can understand a little bit more about their behavior, their own experiences. And oftentimes, you know, you can find you can find parallels in your own life or in people in your own life, and and we are. I mean, I don't want to. I'm I'm not an overly like kumbaya. Let's all come together type thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I am someone who is who really feels that we should be able to try to make those bridges when we can, mm -hmm. um, and it often requires a little bit of opening up. Uh, and vulnerability, as we talked about, from both from from all parties, uh, and a willingness to sort of recognize that someone could be thinking differently or might be experiencing something differently, and to be open to that and try to understand why why they're going through what they're going through, um, and and at least give the dignity give them the dignity of of being able to tell their story. Yeah, I think that the. For me, just your use of story to me is is a powerful clinical tool uh, because I think that people um, 
this is who we are as humans. We tell stories. That's how we, that's how we process the world. You know, we, we really, um, uh, narrative is such a powerful thing. I, I, I love the, the different kinds of narratives that you um, talk about in the book. And I think I'm going to, you know, leave that to people to read the book and, and find out more about that. Um, but I think it, it is, that's how we process the world. So, you know, using that as a lever to get to, to, you know, to, to the issues that are affecting people medically um, is such a useful tool. Uh, you know, when I was uh, a graduate student, I, I did a, a project and it was on, on narrative on how, how, how children at various ages um, told stories using pictures. Um, uh, and uh, what I found that, that is that at a very young age, starting at four, when you ask, you give them pictures and you say, well, make, make me a story. Um, it's not the conventional story that you learn fairly quickly when you get to be seven or eight or 11. But even at that age, if you, you would say, well, that doesn't make any, you look at the pictures and you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It does make sense, but you have to ask them, what's the story about? What are you thinking? Um, and, but it, it seems it's a powerful human driver is, you know, what is your story? What story do you want to tell? So I, I really commend you that you've used that as a real means to open up medicine. Um, and uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, are, are there other things that, that you've learned over the course uh, that you want to share in terms of lessons you've learned um, about, uh, about how, to, how, how we need to change the practice of medicine or, you know, or what is useful that we have now? Well, I am so... I feel like we're in a we're in a crossroad. We're in a pivotal time right now, Ron. I mean, it's no secret to mm -hmm. to anybody out there that our healthcare system is in crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, I also feel that that we need to put patients back. Uh, we can't just say we practice patient centered care. We actually have to put patients back into the center of our attention and. Uh, and I think it's going to require a, a larger examination of of what we mean by healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, recognize the the role of social economic inequities, uh, racial disparities, uh, uh, and how you know in our in our wonderful country, you know, we have people receiving different levels of care. And to talk about the narratives that we that we uh, hold on to, or we highlight, Ron, you know, one of the, one of those narratives is one of technology and advancement and quote unquote innovation. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, we have people in this country who can't even afford their insulin. You know, they can't even get hypertension medications, not getting their asthma medications. They can't get to see a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, we, there's a whole swath and these people come to the ER. They are, they're there. These, these are my patients. Right. Um, and we need to be honest about um, about the really fundamental elements of healthcare that we should be providing for our for our community, so they can thrive, uh, and we can and they can care for themselves, and we can care for them, and they can care for each other. Yes, uh, I think uh, with all you do, you know, as a, as a frontline physician and emergency room, you know, it is clear that a lot of people come to you, and it's like, well, that's not where they should be. They're there because there's no other place for them to go. Um, and exactly. you've run into lots of patients like that. So we need to figure out um, uh, how not to overburden the emergency room because it, it 
it serves a specific function. Uh, but there, yeah, there's a lot to work on there in, in the healthcare system. I, I, you know, we're not going to solve it in one podcast, but I think if we make steps, you know, a bit by bit and, and take certain risks and, and just listen to what you have to say about, I, I think if we listen to people's stories, that will lead us to find out what it is they need in healthcare. And, you know, yes, life is uncertain, but um, one of the, the most um, uh, traumatic uncertainty is your health. If you're uncertain about your health, it really, you know, is, is, makes a lot of the rest of life much more difficult. So there, there has to be some baseline where you can give people some certainty in terms of what care they can get, you know, and what care is affordable and what, um, you know, what we're entitled to, not just entitled to what, what do we want to give ourselves as a society? You know, I, I don't like the word entitlement. It's like, what do we, what do we feel as a society we want to offer each other um, as a baseline to make life you know, better for all of us? I remember, I didn't, I didn't say this, but there was a quote, someone said this in a more eloquent way that, you know, we can judge uh, society, we can judge an age by the way they treat their less well-off. Right. Um, and I feel like, you know, that level of compassion and respect is something that everyone can aspire to. Uh, and I, cause I feel like in the end, it's something we're all going to have to do together. Right. Right. Uh, but it's so, but there's so many people around that, that need to get the care that, that they deserve, that they're unable to, unable to access. And just again, tying in some of our earlier parts of our conversation, you know, a lot of leaders look at the data, right? And data can be very protective. It can be very illuminating. It also can be very protective because right. the data don't have faces. Like it's easiest to ignore the true experiences of others behind numbers. But there's also a role for narrative and there's a role for stories and putting faces to these numbers and the experiences right. and the consequences of certain decisions based on that. Right. Um, and seeing, and I, I just don't see how you can see stories of people suffering um, and then not put this as a number one priority to in our country to get everyone healthy and everyone hopefully healthier than right. they are and get in a basic level of care. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and we'll have to leave it there. There's a lot more to talk about, but um, I just want to thank you, Jay, for a terrific show. And if people uh, missed our show today, I want them to know that um, you can listen to it on the voiceamerica.com. Just look for my podcast, 45 Forward. Um, or you can find it on Apple and Google Podcasts or my website, RowellResources.com, on the 45 Forward tab. So, um, folks, uh, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with another Jay, Jay Newman, um, a legendary hedge fund manager who recently embarked on a new career as a novelist with the recently published financial thriller, Under Money. So, until then, folks, keep moving forward. 45 forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week. <laughs>